Hello and welcome to Susie Explores, a podcast with me, Susie Collier. Today, my special guest is the American singer, songwriter and multi-instrumentalist, Sam Amadon. We had a truly wonderful conversation discussing Sam's love of folk songs, his lifelong relationship with the violin, what it is to be lazy and what it feels like for the American-born Sam to have moved across the pond to North London. Don't you think we're really lucky with the sunshine that's pouring in through our windows? Oh, I know. It's incredible. I've just been out on Hampstead Heath with the puppy. It's a miracle, Hampstead Heath. It is my most favourite place to go, I think, in the whole world. Absolutely. And you guys are just on the far side of it from us. So we're on the far side and you're on the other side and do you walk to get there? Yeah, yeah. Go up. I at least go up to Parliament Hill and then a little further down into the woods and then back. And, you know, the more time, the better. I can go forever. We should do that. Yes. I know we're talking about you coming around and playing table tennis and all sorts of things, but yes, I think we should do a Heath walk. That would be fantastic. Absolutely. I'm out there. Okay. All right. I'm in there. Did you see the moon last night? I did. I saw it through the window. It was incredible. But again, I should have like gone out and had a proper look. I was like back from playing basketball and I was like getting everything ready to go to bed and everything. And I just saw, oh yeah, the moon. But I didn't really register it. It was huge. It was a huge thing. You know how we get the harvest moons in the late summer? It just felt like that as it was rising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it became more kind of pale as as it rose, but it was the most extraordinary thing. How different does the moon feel to you when you're the other side of the pond? At the other side of the big pond? Yep. Gosh, it's been... Well, depends on where I am. You know, if I'm in New York, it's it's one thing. And if I'm in Vermont, it's another. Oh, come on. Tell me the difference. <laughs> I really should look more closely at these things. Like, I think the, um, uh, the moon's good, but the stars are even better because they're just so insanely far away. It blows my mind. I think the moon blows my mind too, though. Because it's quite close and you can pretty much imagine just jumping onto it. I know. I only just learned that like, you only see the one face all the time because it, it faces the earth as it does a whole turn, circle around the earth. Ah, uh, which is why we get familiar with the craters. Yes, um, exactly. They're all oh, the same. Okay. They're always the same. That's the whole dark side of the moon. I didn't, I didn't know that until like a week ago. Because I didn't really do science when I was a teenager. No, so neither really, did I. I have neither worked to catch I. up on that department. I do as well. You've just taught me that now. I mean, I know that I can sense those craters in a way that I recognize, but I didn't realize that at all. A moon's day is the same length as its year. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, it turns around, but it's also turned around. Oh, come on. That's just I think so that's good. true. Although maybe I'm now spreading scientific disinformation. I hope I'm not. Well, people can people can just kind of think about yeah, that. Yeah, there will be angry comments if I'm wrong. I think there will be angry comments, but it'll be it'll be all right. Are there any folk songs that you know about the moon? Absolutely. The very first, and now that I think about it, I've thought about it before, uh, the very first lines of the very first song on my first album, the Chicken Album, is the moon shines bright and the stars they give light, and his fair mist she wear is all alone. So it's the, she's looking up at the moon all alone, being all lonesome. Very first song, lyrics. Do you feel, going back to that album, when you listen to that track, or you can hear it in your head right now, do you love the way that it feels, and are you happy that it is as it is, or would you change anything if you were rethinking it now? That one, 
unquestionably is the first. I just, it is as it is, and I, yeah. it's beautiful as it was. Because the thing about that one, and um, yeah, it starts with a little moon shining away, is it was such a document of, maybe this is true of life, where like the things that are more recent, I'd probably have more specific comments about what I feel like I did well or not on them. Whereas that's now long enough ago, 15 years ago, that it yeah. came out, which is, means sort of 17 years ago that we made it. That it just, you start to just see it as part of that time in your life, not just in a nostalgic memory type way, but just in like a physiological way of like, you know, my voice was different. different. I was 25 yeah. and I was only, I'd only really been singing folk songs for a few years. So I, it, you know, my voice has opened up a lot as I've toured and sung a lot. I hadn't really sung that much then. So you're sort of, it's sort of capturing the um, a more, you know, innocent phase of sound of the voice and I could never make that album again because it was such a document of that, like totally home, you know, terrible recording quality. The, I, I've joked about this before, but like the definition of the take that I used was the one where I got through the song without messing up the guitar because the guitar was also so new. I was basically a beginner <laughs> guitar player. And so, you know, it was just everything new. And my friendship with Thomas at that time, who played all the instruments. So, you know, it's just. Maybe this is what happens when time passes, but I I can't even conceive of doing anything differently of it now because I just see it as a picture of that moment in life. But do you feel like that about every other recording and album you've ever no. met? <clears throat> no, but I think maybe hopefully you start to after enough time goes by. I think, ah, you know, you just sort of see it because I'm sure at the time I had much more different active type brain around it. Um, no, definitely not. That one really specific because it is such a moment of just beginner feeling on all fronts. I think Jacob would really agree with you on that. I noticed that he chose a couple of those at one point on like playlists or something. And I was touched that he went to that one because it's the most clumsiest and, you know, it's, it's the least sort of elegant or whatever. And so I was touched that he responded to that element. Oh, I think we really love the raw of that. Yeah, that, totally. Yeah. You can't recreate that. You can't do it unless it's a real, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like it was, and it's one of those weird things in life. Like, thank God I didn't have the money to go into a studio, right? Like, I wouldn't have been ready to be for that music to be like it had to be in that kind of so it's strange how these things are but how does it feel to have recorded stuff much more recently yeah maybe you weren't ready to go into the studio at that time and that's also a delightful thing really that you hadn't got the experience of how to do it and how to be in that space because things do change but what about the album that you did in lockdown was it actually in lockdown that you did that album no, that was, well, I finished it in the early lockdown, but no, we recorded most of that album live in a couple of days in, in tw fall of 2019. Oh, you did? Because I didn't yeah, know. Totally okay. people in a room together. For the first, there's like three tracks towards the end that were a bit more done through overdubbing because I managed to get into a studio, but it was just two people, you know, but the like first, second, third, fifth, and six tracks are all like, and barely even overdubs, just pretty much people just playing live in a room. So what happened to you in lockdown with regard to your creativity? I mean, do you remember actually coming around here in lockdown and we were, you know, you were on your bike, if you yes. remember. And you came, and then you had a problem with the bike and it was you and Jacob, you were sitting yeah, on the he pavement. Fixed my, he fixed my chain. <laughs> yeah, I just remember that. You're just That's kind of fantastic. sitting there and, and it was a blisteringly hot day like this and you sat at the top of the garden having yeah. a really nice conversation and I remember. Absolutely. And, and that was right in the middle of um, 
lockdown. That was early, yeah, like summer 2020 at some it, point. It or was. June, maybe. I think it may have been June. Okay. Yeah. So there's you and you're coming over and, and uh, we're just getting used to this lockdown malarkey. But what did happen with regard to your creativity in that time? It's a very hard question to answer because I don't really know yet because I haven't really made i mean i haven't made an album since then mm. like the, the the previous album was done already yeah it was pretty much finished in march so i did the last few touches on it and had it mixed at that stage but so i just don't know and the thing is i'm very um it's funny to think back to the chicken album because i'm arguably at a similar point now I need to try and create a similar point in some way. Because the thing with the chicken album was all of that beginnerish quality that I described to you and the clumsiness and nothing, that was all something actually that I created because I'd been in recording studios since I was 10 playing fiddle, right? That was of my course. life as a teenager was playing yeah, yeah. for contra dancing. Yeah. And I was like a professional fiddle player. And what I realized around age 21 was like, I didn't want to be a fiddle player as my job as a musician. Like I didn't, it, I had done it so much as a kid, as a teenager, that it it, it was not going to be a zone for me of creativity, unless it just became a personal thing at that at that time, at that time, you know, yeah, yeah. futures or whatever. And so, I kind of shut off all the professional corners of my. I quit. I, I officially quit taking gigs to play fiddle, and you know, I really turned off the corners of my music that were pro in order to figure out something else. And I was it I very consciously went back to a place of total uncertainty. And it felt very weird because like I was playing banjo in my friend Thomas's band Duffman. And you know, he played he still was playing piano in that group, which was his zone of expertise and power. And so but I was like playing banjo and guitar, which I barely knew at that time, and strumming these chords and we'd be at these gigs and I was just there strumming my two chords. And it was very good musical experience for me because I was like really learning how to play in yeah. rhythm and get my tone together. But at the same time, it was strange to be there and not, and have my superpower taken away. Right. Cause my yes. superpower was fiddle and yes. people who saw me play were like, man, that guy's really good at fiddle. All of a sudden I was going to these things where people wouldn't notice me at all. Cause I was just the dude like strumming these weird banjo chords, not very well, you know, but again, like it created the consciously or not, it created the context for the, you know, cliche thing, but beginner's mind type thing to happen where, and it was same for Thomas, like on the record, he was doing all kinds of stuff he had never done before. So, yeah, you know, it's good to remember, it wasn't just that I was young or something, it was that I actually took, stripped away consciously the things that were keeping me in a space of sort of like competence or whatever, which is that, or, you know, or just professional or whatever, and just took it away. And I feel like each album I've made, there's been something I'm working on to, you know what I mean? Something I'm not sure I can do that I try with the music. And this last one was in some ways the least like that, but in a way it still was because it was just like, okay, no producer, just the musicians that I love playing with, you know, here's the songs, two takes, like a very just free and, yeah. and being achieving that space. But you can't do that again. Like you can't just stay in a space of comfort. It's music stops being interesting, right? Yeah. And so I don't really know right now, to be completely honest. I do not know. The only thing I'll add to answer your question more directly about lockdown is like, and this is also one of these questions of life, which is in the past, I'm very, uh, very undisciplined in terms of my creativity. Like I just keep the voice memos nearby in case something comes out on the guitar. And, and I spend way more of my time listening to music reading books, thinking about art that I love. That's the really the much more conscious. I'm not that, you know, that's what gets me 
going. And I've always trusted that that's useful, you know, that, that, because it always has been in the past. Like I'll find some thing that I'll get inspired by, or I'll listen to a thing and I'll cover a song or think of a way to do a folk song based on something I checked out, right? It's always been productive, but then you can't assume anything, right? So really what I've done in the lockdown is just, I've read tons of books and listened to lots of music and watched lots of films, but it's not clear that that will always be, I mean, maybe I just have taken them in and I love them. I don't, I have to still, I don't know how useful it still is. I don't know that it needs to be useful. The fact is that you seem to be just wanting to drink that in and that's where you are right now. And frankly, it seems like you need, you just need to have a bit of newness that is kind of outside of your comfort zone to keep on being thirsty and curious. It just feels like that. Absolutely. I mean, you have to trust that if everything you're engaging with feels engaging, then that's for a reason. Like if you listen, put your headphones on to find stuff and you can't really find anything, it's probably because you need to take a break from listening to music. You know what I mean? Like, so as long as it's engaging, that's good. But it's also, I don't know though, because some, maybe I wonder if it as life in different phases of life, like there's times when you do need to be more disciplined about, you know, there is a thing when you're 23 and you just, the synapses are going mental, you know, I don't think that I'm not saying your brain slows down. I'm totally engaged with everything I'm doing, but it is possible that with the stuff that comes around in life, that I should actually start to be a bit more, deter- you know, disciplined about just like going out and trying to make something. But why should you be disciplined <laughs> to make something? I get, you give me one good reason, because I'm not convinced that you should be anything Thank at you. all. This is either very helpful or very dangerous, because I'm just <laughs> going to go off this, this conversation and I'm just going to pick up back to my Don Quixote and just read it for like six hours. And <laughs> there so won't pleased. ever be another Sam Emmedon record, because I'll just keep on reading Don Quixote over and yeah. over again. No, like, until what happened you to Sam? Oh, he's reading Don Quixote for the <laughs> time. He hasn't made an album since 2020. <laughs> And that's just how it is. And it all came back to this conversation. Yeah, I don't it's know. Susie Collier's I, fault. I, I, I just love the idea of, you know, maybe I should be disciplined. I like the idea of the use of maybe, first of all, because obviously <laughs> there's a huge amount of doubt in that. And then there's the should, which is the kind of guilt thing. And right, there's the, the right. horrible word disciplined, yeah. which you decided is what we need because just having the phone nearby so you can just do a few voice memos or Don Quixote or just listening to... A new song just because you feel like it is just not good. And yet engaging is good. I quote, engaging is good. Yes. I mean, the thing is, you're really frisky with your music. You do different things. You take a folk tune and you decide to feel it in a completely different way and to own it in a different way. And there must be lots of reasons why you do that. I'm sure it's not a kind of deliberate uh, well, you know, I've known no. it like this all my life. I'm going to do this. No. There is something that you love about newness. I don't know if you can kind of feel yourself into that situation, what it feels like to be excited about a folk song that you've known all your life. And then you think, oh, it could yeah. sound like this. It could feel like this. It's sort of just a collage type practice. And yet you're absolutely right. Like I've been very careful to make sure that it doesn't become a, that I'm just speaking for myself, other people can judge as they will. But for me personally, I've been careful to make sure that it is not just a cookie cutter and just a form, you know, it has to be like the presence of the folk songs has to be quite genuine in terms of the role of the creative process. And they will have to want to be there. And it's also said before, but it's, it's very true, which is like, 
each album I've made of my folk songs, I've always sort of assumed it's going to be the last one. And like, and it, like even when I made the Chicken album, I remember saying to Thomas after that, I was like, so I have no idea what to do next. I can't just do more folk songs. Like, I, I did that already. <laughs> that, like, I thought of it as just like a one-off funny yeah. thing to do, you know? And he's like, there's no reason you can't, you know? So, and as it happened, I still was engaging with them. And But I'm not, a, I, I'm much less... Uh, I am very lazy and I am, I'm very much let external circumstances, you know, spark things less than, it's less my own drive. Although I do often have, if I think back to my records, like I do often have an idea of what's going to happen and it's almost always not what, you know, not what ends up happening. No. Or, and then there's, you know, lots of, many, many elements of chance around people and just like, oh, that person, you know, people are contexts or notions. Yeah. So it's, I guess one of the things about the pandemic possibly is it's reduced that a bit, right? Because I have not been out in the world so much. So there's a little less of that kind of um, things that can lead to, you know, whatever is happening, which hasn't necessarily been bad. I've been home with my kids for a much longer time a period than I would have been otherwise, you know, I was going to be gone a lot and, and I had been gone a lot. So there's been, you know, many beautiful elements of life that I've been able to engage with in that way. And I find that I have no, that's great. Like I find that very creative zone as well, but yeah, I'm just, it's a, it's a crossroads moment for sure. Although it all, hopefully always is. Um, People feel so differently about the term crossroads. And some of the, some people say it in a, in a really worried way. Oh no, <laughs> I've hit a crossroads. What shall I do? Right. And some people just say, hey, you know, I've been waiting for choice all my life. And like, yeah. look, it's just here and I'll just sort of see what happens. And it just seems to me that if you're saying, you're talking about external circumstances and chance and meeting different people and kind of exploring different ideas that you're one of these people who surely you're going to be you're going to be at crossroads all the time mm, absolutely although you know you you still have to again as life goes on you have to make sure that it's still happening and that you're not just saying that it happens you know it's okay. like yeah it's an interesting balance i feel like right now between like, I love singing the songs of my repertoire. I love performing and touring, and I love playing with musicians on that music. But it's a balance between, like, recognizing what you are no are not interested in doing and what you don't want to do, but also pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone. You know what I mean? But isn't it funny how we say we need to push ourselves out of our comfort zone? And again, it's just, what what is all this effort? You know, I just think, right. I think we need to be in situations where we are open to change and Absolutely. open to situations. So I think it's there's too much force going on in there. And I, I think I do get what you're saying. And it's an uncertain thing. And it's, there's this thing that goes on in our heads about whether we need to be proactive about this right. or, or not. But I just think there is a, I think when we're ready, there is just simply an openness. Yeah. And then suddenly you find that people come into your life and um, things change. And it's just because suddenly there's been a change in you. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you don't know at the time what it is. You don't know. No. And, and, and the thing is, the thing that I, I know from earlier on in my life is, it, it go back to going back to that thing that is as long as things are engaging, something is happening that's valuable. It's like, is it? It's very unpredictable 
how things are useful, but they almost always are. Like yeah. in college, I was checking all this different stuff out and I, it was totally incoherent. I was playing like, you know, like one year of classical guitar lessons and one year of free improvising music violin one year of like jazz violin that I was dreadful at you know I was just doing this totally random and it was totally if I had looked at somebody looked at me then like this dude has no idea what he wants to do in music he's and he's doing everything like a little bit but you know I had the basis of the folk music like the fiddle like I, I knew what it felt like to be to really connect with something right like I had done that on the fiddle so I it wasn't sheer dilettantism right like it was because I, I knew what it felt like to be really good at one thing you know i knew what that felt like but i was just checking all this other stuff out and it was like totally incoherent and the way the, the ways in which it's been useful and not is not at all what i intended or predicted like i didn't end up becoming really a violin player in the way that i was sort of pushing potentially to be yeah. like an improvising even though then i sort of brought that back much later in a, in a different way but and then you know just i don't know things if I look back to that time, I can see how useful each of those moments were, but I can see that it took years to kind of germinate and collate into my brain in a way. But there must be something about Lovely Sam that has just always been there because that takes so much courage. You know, people around you are just saying, listen, matey, you know, you do one thing, surely if you want to be really good at your craft, you need to stay on the same course for a few right. years. And there's you just saying, hey, you know, I'm going to flip from here to there and everywhere. And you call it incoherent learning. And yet there's something so deliciously inspiring about how you talk about it, because you're almost it's a bit throwaway or just saying, well, you know, I did a bit of this, did a bit of that. And then, you know, years later, it kind of filters through and then you can see the usefulness. But when did you become so courageous? Because that is courageous. It's so much easier to just follow everybody else and to think, yeah, there is a norm and there is a way and there is a journey here. And I'm supposed to be right. studying this thing. But you didn't do that even at that age. I think the things that were the most courageous were things were kind of when I took stuff away. You know, that, that decision to say to the people that I was, you know, I had like a, I could make a couple hundred bucks playing the fiddle at these gigs, you know, but they all booked a year in advance. So it was at that age, uh, you know, it was sort of keeping me from opening my yes. life because it was, things were set and it was complicated to just say no to that, you know, and I'm, I'm thankful to my earlier self for making that move at that time, you know, because of what it opened up to just turning off stuff. It's like the classic of parenting. It's like, the best parenting thing is like, take the devices away and then just leave them to their own, let them get bored. And then, you know, that's right. They come up and ask five times, can I, I just want to watch this one thing, right? Nope, 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 nope. And then, you know, all of a sudden you come down and there's some weird clay sculpture being created. You know, it's just that, exactly. the, the, yes. the act that led to that is the taking away, you know, is the turning off and taking away of other stuff. There was also a similar moment where I realized that I was addicted to having headphones on and listening to music on headphones. Oh, yes. Like even if I walked down to the shop, I would, it was in the CD era, I would bring like three CDs with me in case I couldn't decide Obviously, what to listen to yes. on the one block, like to the corner shop. So I took a year off headphones, you know, and, and I only listened to music if it was in, in the house, you know, conscious. And if I was out in the world, it was, you know, kind of removing one element is really can be a very crucial thing in life. And I don't know what, sort of drove it or whatever because again yeah there's always a move where it's just like yes this is what has to happen but i don't know what that move is now no Stop reading books 
Oh, I can't imagine you saying that, actually going through with that at all. It's so interesting, though, this kind of positive taking away. I don't think I'm really used to hearing mm. that. Mm. You know, you're literally saying, yeah, taking stuff away, withholding. I mean, that's, a, that's quite a big, that's quite a big t- thing. Yeah, I mean, withholding is probably the wrong word, because we're, I think, t- re- removing something. Removing yeah. something. And it's really a mystery to me. It's like, I love the um, Kenny Wheeler album, Angel Song. And it's a quartet, I think, yeah. Bill Frizzell, Lee Konitz, and Dave Holland. And, you know, there's no drums on it. And <laughs> no. I've heard, which I suppose I could ask somebody, one of the, you know, somebody like if this is really true, but I've heard from music, other musicians, not from those musicians. I've heard that, you know, it was, there was a drummer who was like Jack D. Jeanette was supposed to be on the session and at some last minute he couldn't, or I don't know if it was him, <laughs> but, you know, that there was supposed, it was supposed to just be like a normal jazz quintet and that the drummer couldn't make it and kenny wheeler made the decision to not find another drummer and you know that's one of the most magical beautiful cherished records of that era exactly because you know there's no drums on it and all the musicians are having to create the space and the time themselves and it's like when is it the it's so ironic also because it's like it's cheaper to have less people in that moment right it would cost him more to have a drummer so like it's so mysterious in those those moments when and and i won't say less is more because that's not what i mean but we're we're removing an element in dramatically increase the power of that group you know like and and everybody was just in this heightened state and and you can't do that every time because it's not going to work every time but when is it right to do that it's such a mystery that makes me think about what it's like to heighten your state with in terms of your, your senses. So mm. play, playing with your eyes closed or where well, there are just so many different things or just, mm. con- or just concentrating on feel and what it feels like to hold that instrument and to learn not by rote and not by just robotic movements, but to learn by feel exactly where something is to be really conscious of what part of your hand is is touching the fretboard or whatever it happens to be absolutely is an incredible thing isn't it and i find it really quite exciting to just to heighten a particular sense in there i don't know whether you do that in your playing absolutely it's so important it's the it's crucial yeah and it's like a fine balance between sort of not it's not precious you want to be at ease, but at the same time, what you're saying, like just really engaging with the sound. Yeah. And yeah, it's funny. I've been, t- I mean, I'm teaching, I have little gu- guitar students in the neighborhood. I have about eight students. Oh. And so that's quite interesting, you know, watching kids, how they do stuff. And, but it's always just getting them to slow down, make each note ring out till they get to the next one, you know, and everybody wants to play fast right away, you know, and it's just like, it'll help you play faster as well as also just sounding better. But yeah, it's interesting. But how do you get somebody to care about the sound they're making rather than the chops they want? Good question. I don't do that. I just sort of constantly keep getting that we're going to take it at this tempo, you know, and I and I just keep them at it and we'll play it together. And yeah, I don't know. I think you just, I don't talk about it. You just kind of have to do it by example or whatever. I like that. There are so many thoughts that I have. <laughs> I'm wondering what you're like with your kids with regard to taking stuff away or with regard to discipline or... Well, I'm very good about it with the screen type stuff. I mean, I, they, they watch on play things, but like, I'll just, I'm, I, cause you kind of, that's the weird, like power to parenting or like the, uh, you know, absolute power. And so <laughs> I'm very good at do, do that element of things. 
I, 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 I was actually kind of funny because when I started, um, when Arthur started playing trumpet a few years ago, I found that I was the worst. Uh, I've gotten better. I've, I've worked on it for myself, but I was the worst parent music like i was the most cliched like no play it again like you, you may why did you mess up yeah you have to play it three more times in a row correctly like i was like the opposite of like the like you know create and i was like where is this coming from it was so strange like my parents were not like that even remotely you know and i found i was like the, i was like the cliche like 19th century kind of like wrap the knuckles type like and it's so funny i was like i definitely i was like where have this come from i did not expect to be that way but did like, did arthur just say um, listen, Pops, you know. Yeah, he hated it. He's I'm like, not enjoying this. I could tell. I could just tell that he was not enjoying it at all. So I was like, oh, it can't be like that. That's ridiculous. But it was so funny for it to emerge. But it's <laughs> it's funny when you say, I can't be like that. But you've got to feel, you really got to believe that you can't be like that to really make a change. Otherwise, a child sees through it. They'll just say, oh, yeah, they're just putting it on. Oh, no, it's really fine. You're playing very beautifully. Totally. Totally. <laughs> yeah, I, I think of my teaching, I'm a combination of like, very enthusiastic with the students, but also, yeah, I, you know, I'm pretty insistent. But you say that your folks were not like that with you at all, because surely, yes, that's it. Cannot be a simplistic. I also had violinist parents, you know, I had you musician did. parents, so the whole thing was music. I think it's really complicated. So, yeah. So tell me about some of the layers, because I'd love to know. Yeah, I mean, it's total immersion. That's the great, you know, in terms of. Like people ask, like, well, did did they make you, or did you know? And I was, of course, not. But it would have been like, it was just immersion. It was like the world we lived in. Because it's exactly. Do you know you put it so well? Because it, you could, it's not as though you could avoid it, and it, and you didn't question it because it was just there. Yeah. And so you just lived it, didn't you? Absolutely. I mean, and and you know, again, there's the things that were more in the background. Like I wasn't into singing as a kid. It wasn't my but I did sing a lot. Like I sang with them and I sang in choirs. And of course, choirs was kids your own age. So then that became a social part of my life. Mm. But in my mind, my conscious mind, I wasn't really doing it like because I wanted to sing. I was just doing it to hang out with the kids. Like my real uh, personal obsession was fiddle, you know. But again, I'm very thankful for all the singing I did because that's well, that's now what I do. <laughs> I'm a singer, yeah. which totally, you know, and that was not intentional. And, um, and again, like they were into all the old kind of American folk music type stuff, whereas yeah. I was really into the Irish traditional fiddle style, which again, like, you know, within the world, it's this, it's a funny thing, like there's like genres uh, can be very absurd, but, but, you know, these musical languages are very real, right? So yeah. to me as a kid, like the Irish fiddle thing was totally different from the American old time thing, right? It is different. It's totally different. And so from that, my ears were very much connected to this traditional Irish sound. So American old time stuff sounded really rough and clumsy to me and I wasn't really that into it. But again, it was in the background that my parents sang, played banjo and stuff. So it there was an osmosis happening even if I consciously wasn't that drawn to it. And um, yeah, it was just an immersion and the premise was sort of, you know, if, if I was gonna take lessons, I had to practice. But again, I same there. I mean, I, I took violin lessons, like classical lessons through the age of 12 and I quit. At, at 12 because I just at that time I just was only wanted to do fiddle and then through my teenage years I had no formal I had no regular teacher I just would go to these camps in the summer and soak up the workshop stuff and then throughout the year check out records and go to the gigs and everything again like they were and they were fine with that like when at 12 I said I don't want to take violin lessons anymore they were fine that's amazing parenting that you Absolutely. had they said that was fine and yeah. yet you're at age 12 and 
Yeah, they could have easily said, no, you should really stick with this because you need to keep your technique up or That's whatever, right. you know, because I did want to still play Vittle. Maybe they could see that you definitely wanted to have something positive and that was just enough. I mean, they would have been disappointed if I'd stopped playing the fiddle, for sure, as a teenager. And I'm sure I was aware of that on some deeper psychological level or whatever. But maybe I'm saying that and maybe that's in my mind. Who knows, you know? <laughs> but, but have they been yeah. have they been pleased that you've brought the fiddle back into your music in such a strong way now? Yeah, absolutely. Although they don't think they really, I think they, I mean, they just love, because, you know, I think to them it was almost maybe more of a surprise that I went to the folk songs, you know, including oh, many okay. songs they sing. So that would have been, they, they just, you know, they're, they're into whatever I'm up to. And they love all the more experimental elements. So, um, but yeah, I'm sure they would, they love, yeah, they would be into hearing me play some fiddle. But I had a, I am very lazy, I have, as I've already yeah, said. You said and this is I the second a, time you said that. And, and, and <laughs> I, have a, I had a best friend from age seven, who's Thomas Bartlett. And he was very driven and very intense about music and very intense about pushing, pushing beyond our comfort zone musically. And that was life-changing for me because I think I would have been more complacent about music in general yes. and more complacent about just kind of being a fiddle player. And it was partially, again... The, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I would have found some other thing if it hadn't been him. But but he was, you know, much more in... I mean, I was a very kind of normal kid or whatever. And Thomas was like, we were eight. And he, I would go to his house and be like, I just wrote a tune. I'll teach it to you. Let's work up an arrangement. You know, at the, at the age of eight. Really? And, oh, completely. Yeah. And and he was, a, he was like a proper, you know, steeply precocious pr prodigy type, you know. And, and so to have that person as my best friend was very... In, drove me a lot because and you know and we and, and i and i'm sure you know i'm sure i influenced him i mean i know i influenced him as well because we i brought the fiddle and we were you know we were all checking out music together but he had a kind of intensity at a very young age that then i pl was played off of you know that, that fired me up i think but it is interesting because he had all that kind of drive but he was still attracted to you as a friend and somebody to work with and i but that's interesting isn't it yeah for totally yeah you're so lucky to have had a Thomas in your life in that kind of a way. Absolutely. But you say that basically you're intrinsically lazy. <laughs> and I don't know, again, I think that's a, that's a bit of an umbrella term. <laughs> I think that can mean so many, so many things. Well, I have a lot of energy when I'm lazy. So it's, it's, it's not, you know. It's, it's, <laughs> you have a lot of energy, but you're lazy. <laughs> but when, you're, when you've got a lot of energy, you just do stuff, don't you? Yeah. Totally. I really, I mean, my favorite activities right now are this, this is the thing, it's like my parenting, the age that my kids are is matched. So playing basketball, <laughs> reading books, watching, watching films. Cause now my Nancy is my stepdaughter is 15. So there's like, we can watch all the, we watched do the right thing two days ago, the Spike Lee film. So incredible. So beautiful to see it again. And even, and, and amazing to watch it from their perspective and, you know, it blows my mind. So Nancy is 15. Arthur is 10. And he's seen Seven Samurai three times, starting at age five, once every two years. He'll be due next year for the, for the fourth time, I think. That's not lazy to kind of think in terms of when their film's just going to return in that kind of a way. <laughs> I well, he might rebel and be like, I'm not into Seven Samurai anymore, you know, and I have to be okay with that. And you have to be okay with that. You really, yeah. really do. Yeah, you can't, I think you can't label yourself as lazy when you get those bursts of energy and you just kind of do stuff because uh, that's the uh, antithesis well, of lazy in, in a sense. I'm very, very interested in creativity. I mean, profoundly. And that's what I had another, we had, a, there was like a third friend whose name was Gabe, who was, who, who did, was very into music, but is that's not, his, he's not, he's not, didn't 
didn't really play an instrument. He was more into visual art and philosophy and stuff. But so he and I also, he was an, another, as a teenager, and we were just like obsessed with creativity and thinking about like, like what it, we had, we had all these, I'm sure, I mean, I, embarrassed at anybody that overheard us when we were like 15 years old. Oh, go home from on. The, you know, like, and just like whatever, just like the most, you know, we would be <laughs> like, like we would be obs having these obsessive conversations. Like, could you play, like, could a major scale be a deep creative? Like, could you play a major scale well enough that your interpretation is like, makes it the greatest thing ever? Like yeah. it could, like we would, you know, all these kind of think thoughts you have, like, where, where is it? Like, what is like, and we would, and what was beautiful about it was like, it was totally in a vacuum. Like, like I remember like Thomas and I were checking out kind of blue, the Miles Davis album. Yes. And then we were checking out the 58 sessions one, which is like the standards, yes. like Stella yeah, by Stella yeah. stuff. And we were like, why does kind of blue have this particular vibe where it's so magical and even though i mean he was playing like really advanced classical piano and i you know i had basic music theory it didn't occur to and either of us i don't think it occurred to us that it was like like kind of blue is like these modal they're playing you know just like the one chord thing you know like like we didn't really occur to us we just thought it was like some magical quality that kind of blue had that just made it that that somehow wasn't present when they were playing standards as opposed to hearing you know that the standards were this different harmonic thing and i mean we knew that it was modal jazz i don't know but like there was nobody around to explain to us like what it was we just it was kind of we were just in a void you know which again is that kind of thing about like pre-internet where there was no all music to just like tell us or wikipedia to just sort of tell us what people think it is it was sort of hearing things in a vacuum you know which again is a removal of that element although it's a removal because it didn't exist yet but or because we weren't in a world of people like we didn't know anybody who listened to jazz so it was a very fun exploration for us because it was just so abstract we just had no idea what was going on but don't you think you know as you as you recount that story as a part of how you said it that it was as though yeah but had we know known it was modal it, it kind of wouldn't have been so magical but you need you needed to have the magic that was the that was the thing you needed to have the magic it's really well, it great that that a was deeper in a form of listening of course it did yeah, I can think of all these times listening to records where, it, you know, just I listened so closely because I had no idea what was going on. And there was nobody to say, oh, well, they're just doing this. And then you just decide, you know, or whatever without hearing. But again, like, yeah, so creativity, I'm not lazy about. But the thing is for me, like, you know, but listening to music is like, and reading, like, these are all creative acts, right? Yeah. So that's where the potential laziness comes in. Because whether I, whether one needs to do something, I don't really feel like, I don't see it as being important for, I don't know if this is true, man. maybe I'm just talking shit, but I think I believe that I, the whole idea that you need to make an album every few years or you oh, need yeah. to put stuff out is, I do, I, I'm with you in terms of the what I feel is behind some of your questions. I, I'm, I agree with strongly, which is like, and, you know, some of the most beautiful artists who are the most inspiring to me, you know, have only maybe made one record after Absolutely. 40 years of playing the fiddle and they just, they didn't decide, they didn't feel like they had anything they want, would need to add to it yet, you know, until they were. And so, you know, I am with that as well. Like, I don't think it's, it's, but, it, but then the paradox flip side is when you're sometimes when you're forced out of whether it's economic necessity or some sort of circumstance to make shit, you do stuff you never would have. So that's the weird balance of that. It's like, you know, like with after I made I made the Falling Mountain album, which is the one yeah. where it's all original music. And, you know, that was a real personal challenge. And when I finished that one, I was like, you know, I think I'm done. I don't yeah. need to make any more records. I love singing those songs from all my different albums. I can play concerts when if people want me to. Yeah. I'll just change my career and I don't need I don't need to make a record. And then 
I was invited to do this gig of at the in Belgium at the Ancien Belgique where they were going to do all these albums of people doing Harry Smith anthology songs. Mm-hmm. And when the guy asked me to do it, I was like, I'm not going to do that. Like that's just what I do in my whole life already is do versions of folk songs. I'm not going to have somebody like why like like it just sounded like. But then I was like, well, it's you know it's a good gig, <laughs> and, and and I was like, well, you know, I haven't really done, I haven't really engaged with the Harry Smith that much. Like they sort of commissioned me to to you know pay me to to do it to come up with stuff for it, and then that was again that like sort of dr- so I was like, shit, I got to do something. I have the gig, yeah. and they've paid me to make something new for it, and yeah. and it was like coming up in a month. And I just had a day and I just like, and you know, and it's that classic yeah. thing. Like I came up with all this and, and then I got really into it yeah. and that ended up being the basis of, of the album, the, the, the most recent album. Yeah, like a third of those songs are from, or at least third, a third, if not half are from, are left over from, we're, we're, we're part of that concert. So, you know, I never would have done it if that guy hadn't have been like, we're going to hire you to do this and we're going to pay yes. you. And I would have been like, Oh, okay. I guess I should do that because it's you know a gig, and so that's where that thing gets mixed. Where it's like, you know, if you do get off your ass and do something, things happen, and they're usually worth doing, you know. But there is something really peculiar about being asked to do something, and you know it's going to put the bread on the table for a, a week or so. So you say yes, and afterwards you just think, why have I said yes to that? Because I'm just not interested in doing that. And then you get into the task. And I think that with almost every single task that we take on, if we really engage, to use your word, if we really engage with it, there is something that is really joy-giving and really inspiring about it. Certainly. But again, it comes back to the idea of you've got to be open to something coming your way and you thinking, okay, I'll catch that one and I'll I'll see what Mm. I can do with it in there. And that's a great story, but... I also love the idea of, I've got nothing to add with an album. I think that also maybe you don't necessarily want to speak to the world in that way at this this particular time. And instead of any element of anxiety that surrounds that, it's really great just as it is. And you know you, when there's something that you really want to cook, you're going to cook it. Yeah, yeah. No, you often find that that it, stuff has been percolating over time. You have, I mean, I oft, you often find that you have more than you thought you did. If yes. you keep if you keep an eye on it all, keep track of it as it comes, you know. How different is Beth in terms of working and creating, and how totally different? I mean, she right. is she is the person, and it's incredible to watch because she is the person who just goes out every day, four hours a day, and just works. And just starts from zero and just goes and goes and it's 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 really impressive and yeah and works really hard over months and just like every day out there you know super very very uh, pro- proper work ethic around creativity oh. and it's impressive yeah it's amazing to see where does she go to do it well it's been different time thing places over time but we have a we have a, a little garden shed studio which is fantastic which I use as well but um. But for the last couple of years, not during the lockdown. Well, no, it's probably during the lockdown. Yeah, definitely during it. And for the year before, uh, she was just every day out there. Very impressive. And just to watch somebody just like go and just make stuff. It's all of these questions of like whether she has ideas is irrelevant. It's just like go start, <laughs> just, put, you know, make, do stuff, do stuff, do stuff. You know, keep re rewrite, rewrite, you know, revisit, check stuff out. Totally. You know. But don't you think it's interesting how there are, so many different mindsets 
Because yeah. I know pe- I do know people like Beth, but I also know people who are much more like you. And certainly, mm. my my son is one of those people. And it's a it's a different thing because obviously it's it's kind of catching that creative spark when it's there. But I think those people who really do have that kind of let's come back to the word discipline. It really works for them. Yeah. And that must mean that they are getting rid of some of the preconceptions that we all have about, oh, I'm not really sure whether I've really got an idea today or not sure if this is going to work or this doesn't feel good. She's just blasting through that. She's blowing air right through that. Yeah. And she's just doing something anyway. Yeah. She's driven in that way. How does she perceive you? In terms of your creative process, does she does she talk to you about it in in a kind of a you could do this too kind of thing, or does she just see that your creative process is beautiful as it I is? I think she recognizes, yeah, that it's different. Yeah, this is different pace and different kind of vibe, and yeah. What happens when you both want the shed at the same time? <laughs> <laughs> I don't. It's just like then one of them somebody else goes in the house. The um, I mean, it's it is a balance of life for sure. Like with as we all know, like kids touring, you know, all that kind of stuff is a is a major. In the last few years, it's been more. I kind of work bits every month, whereas Beth will hunker down, make the record, and when she goes out, it's more. You know, um, but you know, there's no yeah. It's just it's madness. There's no real way to just like systematize it. Just take it all as it comes, trying to get through. And you do, and it just happens, mm. and it's okay. That's really good. I'm really glad that you have a shed. Many years ago, I remember a very dear friend introducing me to She Cries Your Name. Oh, cool. And I've all, obviously, I've just always loved the fiddles on there. I mean, that Yeah, thing, I the know. The strings are beautiful. They really are. Did you have anything to do with that? No, that was like, I was like six, I was at home in Vermont. That was like oh, uh, no, 1997. Really? <laughs> I was like, I was a teenager. That I had the CD, man. I love that shit. Um, it's Ollie. Uh, Ollie <laughs> Kraus is his name. Oh, really? Yeah, he's he did the strings for that, and he toured with her a lot and everything. But I know I love those strings. Beautiful. It's the way I listened to it again last night. It just gave me oh, all cool. those all those thrills all oh, over again. Totally. But it's the way he tunes. Actually, yes, yeah. that's what's exciting, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's proper. Yeah, I thought it was like some sort of Indian classical musician or something. Yeah, yeah, it's quite yeah. legit. Like, uh, yeah, I think they're just messing around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just... yeah, I was involved in the album she made called Sugaring Season, mm-hmm. which is really beautiful. Brian Blade plays drums on it. And uh, I played a lot of just little bits of acoustic guitar and violin. And I was just very, like, in the studio, really involved in that one a lot. And then the next couple, have we've just been a bit more separate. Okay, no, I get that. Good. It's probably a good, it's a good it's thing, good. isn't it? Yeah. Okay. I want to come back to you and the banjo and the guitar. And there's you in a gig where you're playing two chords. Because hell, I only know two chords. Yeah. But, I, you know, rhythmically, I can do something quite interesting. But I think, had it been me, I would have just tried to play the banjo like the fiddler. I would want to get that line. Because the line is the only thing I know. I don't know mm. anything else, right? Yeah, guitar made no sense to me when I no. first started playing it. The whole idea of like the chords, the block chord thing. I could play, I could shred the melodies because I could kind of translate the violin, you know, but chords just made no sense. But again, like, you know, it made my writing on the guitar much more interesting, you know, because I made I just used made create created these weird simple odd things based on one chord that I learned. And, uh, you know, I had no sense of it as an overall. That's the thing I've sort of like, I've kind of learned to play guitar over the last 12 years of making these records. Mm. And I kind of know how to play guitar now. So again, it's like, it's like harder to, it's actually not harder to write on it. Like I've written some stuff, but it's like, 
it's that weird um yeah the thing you want to avoid i feel like in music is competence <laughs> you know what i mean i, I like that <laughs> you either want to be like a total beginner or a total master and there's like a middle ground where you've just achieved like proficiency and competence and it's just it's it's that's where mediocrity you know what i mean it's it's the worst so does that maybe that drives you maybe that is what drives avoiding you. competence yes can you imagine <laughs> I don't know what your kids are going to say when they listen to this, but, um, yeah, exactly. you know, avoiding competence. I mean, that's yeah. amazing because I think so many people would be absolutely happy as Larry to be experiencing competence. Yeah, no, I think it's to be avoided at all costs. <laughs> well, shoot, I'm just going to just say I'm a beginner in it then, and then that's fine. <laughs> yeah, a big, yeah, beginner competent. But I still don't understand how I, I mean, it's it's like when Jacob will say, Oh, here's a guitar, or look, here's the harpeggio, just give it a go. Or here's a mandolin. And obviously, well, not obviously, I, I just have to make a melody. I, I have to do that. It's totally beautiful. I mean, that's, that, that, it's, it's weird that I, that I've ended up being like a multi-instrumentalist because, because to me as a teenager, and I do, part of me still feels this very much like, as, and to what you're saying, like, you know, nothing is deeper than, having a lifelong connection mm. to an instrument, to mm. one instrument. Mm. And for me, that instrument is the fiddle and it will always be. Even if in my life it, it, people engage with it, it's like it doesn't it's irrelevant to the rest of the world. And that's kind of what you're saying. Like you, yeah. you're so deeply connected yeah. to the violin yeah. that any other instrument, it's like, and I was, and, and not only did I not check out other instruments till I, until I was 20, but I mean, a bit of banjo a couple years before, but not really, but it was a deep, on a deep philosophical level as a 16 year old, I really did not believe that it was possible to play more than one instrument in your life to really do that. Like you could, you could try other ones, but there was really only going to be one instrument that you could truly connect with. And how do you, how do you really genuinely feel about that? About now? it now. Yeah. I think I still believe that, but I think that in terms of having a lifelong being creative and doing different stuff, but it, I think, well, I don't know, because there is that funny thing where you have your own idea of yourself. It just starts to get out, of, like, like the like the way like Joni Mitchell thinks of herself, like as a painter, right? Yes. Like, and she's like, I make, I mean, I've made music because that's what I've done, but really, what I'm good at is painting, you know. Yeah. And of course, objectively, she's a. I love her paintings; they're beautiful. But like objectively, that's not true, right? She's like the greatest songwriter of ever, and like ever. And in, in <laughs> one of the greatest guitar players ever, and ever. one of the greatest producers ever. And you know, and yet I believe that, that I believe I believe her when she says that. Like for her, she probably when she paints, she just feels like she knows what she's doing, and when she, you know what I mean. And yet that's allowed it to become whatever. And I yes. still feel that. For me, I still definitely feel that. Like when I pick up the fiddle and play Irish tunes, like I was like, this is what I actually know how to do. Like all the other stuff I've done because it was a way for me to be creative with people, but this is what I'm good at. And and that that might not even objectively not really be true anymore. Like, like cause I haven't really engaged with Irish fiddle for 20 years the way no. that I, well, it's not true. I mean, I played uh, gigs at the pubs. I actually got much better, I think, at tunes in my twenties even though it wasn't because I was playing my, one of my jobs was playing for the sessions, you know, and it was beautiful, beautiful players in town at that time. And so I'm not engaging with it in the way that somebody for whom their life is playing Irish tunes. Like there's all these great players now, uh, Bridget Campbell, that yeah. bagpiper from oh, Isle yeah. Sky, incredible. Yeah. And, uh, this musician in, um, which I'll send you if you haven't heard, cause she's not, she doesn't play professionally so much. I mean, 
she, she doesn't tour or anything. It's like Sailyog ni can't ni. I don't know. It's like very a uh, lot. Of, I send have to learn me. to pronounce. Please send but me. I'll, but it's S A I L E O G is the first name, and she plays fiddle and piano and sings Sean Nos style, and it's just so so deep. Um, Cormac Begley. There's like mm-hmm. all these beautiful players, uh, you know, and you know for them this it's their life. They're doing it their whole life, so it's different, you know, because I haven't. I I kind of moved to these other direction, but when I play the fiddle, I f- I do have that feeling you know that comfortable feeling of which like, is amazing is, isn't it it, it, it is. belongs here yeah and when i play the other instruments i feel like i'm checking them out or banjo you know more but banjo is it's a different instrument so maybe the fiddle is home but yes. then it's quite interesting that you're a vermont boy but actually you came over here and you live just a couple of miles away from me yes. and so is vermont still your comfort place like the violin is to you i would say so yeah definitely Vermont, or but also New York a bit. Well, but New York has has changed since I, you know, it changes a lot because it's a city. But Vermont kind of doesn't, you know, it doesn't change so much. You go back and it feels just like Vermont still. Why are you linked to both those places? Because uh, New York is where I lived through my twenties, you know, college and and thereafter, and I just it's just where I it's just like the patterns of the city and the life of it matched me really well. And did you have any hesitation about leaving it and coming oh, to Oh, definitely. Yeah, when I first was here 12 years ago now, I really missed the city terribly and 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 missed my world of New York. And I kind of felt like I'd only just figured it out in the previous couple of years, you know, because yes. the first first year or two in New York were extremely lonely, which again was very productive. It's when I wrote all the first it was when I came up with all the chicken stuff because I was just like alone in my apartment ages, didn't have mm. wasn't getting asked to play gigs or anything and, you know, I it was very productive ultimately but um but then you know there was this couple of years where i really felt like i'd figured the city out and it was just like my oyster and then all of a sudden i was yanked it was as had yanked myself out of it and gone to this other place and that made no london made no sense to me at first but now now i'm at peace with it i'm good with london how tricky was that transition oh incredibly hard yeah i mean it was exciting as well because i was in the relationship and that's all you know there are many beautiful elements to it but the leaving new york was hard yeah yeah, you both had to go through that, though. That's quite a, a hard beginning to kind of be together in a full sense, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's a new new universe. But you love Hampstead Heath and you love going on there. and I and, love the uh, Heath, for sure. And, and it's great. And I found my basketball game. I go play basketball once a week. And it's great because it, I'm in London. So I can, I'm can. i a good basketball. You know, in New York, the competition is a little harder, you know. I mean, London what do you, is good, too. What do you too. say? I, what do I you hope, say? Yeah, but if the guys on the WhatsApp hear this, they're going to, like, you know, go into the <laughs> Um, no, no, there's some people who are way better than me. Don't get me wrong. In my basketball game, many, but, um, but in, no, and it's good. It's good. It's fun of my game. I'm good. I'm glad about that. There is something I did want to ask you. You mentioned the contra dancing of long ago and yes. how you, you learned your craft, really. And you did that yes. till you say, you know, 21 or whatever. I really want to know. Because you actually, you actually came here, and this was a different time, I think, and you sat around our table and yeah, Sophie like was there. Yeah, the first time I came, yeah. The first time. And um, Sophie got really excited because she said, oh, yeah, Contra, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't Contra. believe you guys knew about it. It was ridiculous. She got all excited. But I want to know how different a skill 
it is for you to have learnt your chops playing for people to dance mm. to, as opposed to, here we go, we're all in this gig together and I'm just going to give you something that's musical and you may want to mm. shuffle your feet around, but this is not a dance. Yeah. What's, what's the difference in your heart, mind, soul and spirit? It was, it's, an, I mean, I love the contra dance thing. I think it's great. Like it's so fun to do. And, and the, the musicians, the level of musicianship is really high in that world. It's just great, great musicians. It's actually interesting because, because the, the, my main bandmate as much as possible when I tour is Chris Vadalaro, you know, who plays yeah. drums on the albums and he plays little electronics, but on live he plays drums and, but he also plays a lot of other multi-instrumentalism and, you know, one of Chris's foundational musical experiences in his 20s was playing drums in the group Antibalas, which is an Afrobeat band. And they played for, it was playing for dancing, you know. And so both oh, of us have this background okay. of playing for people dancing. And really, regardless of the style, it's a really deep thing to do because people are, you're not playing for that kind of active listening, right? They're dancing with each other. Yeah. What's happening is kind of in the background. And yet, obviously, it's the pulse and the shape of the music. It's driving them. And if you vary from it, they'll feel it and they'll be, ang you know, they'll be upset because, you know, the music is for the, you're serving the dancing, right? And, and the beat has to be super solid and the shape over time. And the, the dances are like eight minutes long about, you play for about eight minutes at a yeah. time and then you pause and they teach the next dance. And then three minutes later, you play another eight minutes. And so it's, you know, it's a, and it's, you know, you have to keep the energy up, right? You can't like in a concert, you can just play like some slow random thing for a minute and people space out. That's not happening at a dance, right? It yeah. has to keep the vibe and you do have to keep the interest. You can't just play one tune four times with no, you know, that, that's where this whole realm of like the piano player, like would reharmonize. Actually, a lot of my reharmonizing ear comes from what the guitar player and or, and or piano player would do at the dances. So I wasn't doing it at all. I was just playing the tune over and over again with, you know, a slight variation and yes. changes in intensity and dynamics and stuff. But the main thing was just the, the, the violin is the main rhythmic instrument for contradancing. Yes. That's okay. actually something that will be, in, you know, that's important to say, because it might not be obvious to people outside of the genre. Like the violin is driving the rhythm of the dance. And then the piano is more of a color thing. I mean, it can drive the rhythm, but it's more interesting when it's color. Guitar is also very rhythmic, but again, like it's all, it's adding kind of like it's reharmonizing and stuff. So Thomas and Keith in our band would be, you know, calling arrangements on the fly and we would be moving things around, but it was over, you know, we'll be like, okay, in three, three times and then we'll change, you know, it's going to be in two minutes, something will change. So it's that minimalism vibe and very rhythmic. So you know, it's it's an incredible a musical experience because it just gives you that internal, solid, rhythmic feeling. And you still want that to be in all of your music, regardless of whether it's for Dan. And I mean, all music, sh I mean, as you know, I'm sure like, you know, the nothing is better at a gig is when people start, you know, dance. And Moving. If, and, yeah, yeah, they can, all my music is danceable. It's just whether, it's just whether people are going to, you know, do it. And Thomas and I, what we did is we weren't into dancing, which was silly. We should have, you know, should have gone and danced. But, but um, I mean, it went, but but we but what we would do is we would just go. These bands were like our favorite bands, and we would just go sit on the stage for the entire four hours and just treat it like concert. Like we just watched them the whole time. That's what we did. And so we were taking it, it which was not what the music was intended to be. You know, it was in, it was intended for dancing. So, but but again, it was just like watching every element of how the musicians 
decided what was going to happen and watching them interact and watching the rhythmic feel between them all. And it was entrancing for us. It's great. I mean, it's sad that you missed out on the dancing, but actually yeah. it's really great. It's really great that you were just... It was deep though. Yeah, of course it was It was really deep in there. Are there any contra-dance folks that we should be listening to? The band Nightingale and the album is... So on the albums, they, you know, they, they, they don't put the... They do like a concert version, so they'll do like a three-minute arrangement of sets. It's more like the Celtic music scene type thing. But yeah, Nightingale... Uh, put out beautiful records. One of them's called Sometimes When the Moon is High. And uh, Hey, here comes the moon again! Yes, right? the moon is making a re- <laughs> return appearance. It is. Beautiful. And it's real New England folk music, which is okay. like the fiddle style is a mix of Irish and French-Canadian influences. Okay. That's the, the New England style. I'm, I'm definitely going there. Yeah, check out that record. It's gorgeous. <laughs> I'm going to check out that record. I really, really am. You do realise, don't you, that this conversation is going to continue on the heath? Absolutely. Okay. And I, we'll hit I, it. I actually think it's going to happen really very soon. Absolutely. And I'd like to meet the pop. Absolutely. Kit's ready. Okay. No, he that's... sings along with Arthur's trumpet. That's their best thing. They do a beautiful duet. <laughs> do they really? Yeah, I'll send you a video. Please send me. I want to see. And obviously you have a really busy day ahead of you because you've got to get much further with the book. You do realize that, don't you? I know. Don Quixote, he just nearly killed this dude who turned out to be his neighbor dressed up in a costume as a knight. So we have to find out what happens next. You need to know what happens and there are many pages to go. So you have so so many hours of joy. Of laziness. (laughs) So so pleased to see you again. Thank you so much for having me, Susie. (laughs) It's a great pleasure. Can't wait to see you very, very soon. Actually, I'm going to see you very soon. I'm going to see you very soon. Yeah, it'll happen. Yeah, that's good. Thanks so much for coming on board for this conversation. There are many more I can't wait to share with you. So do click the subscribe button. And if you want to come find me, find me on Instagram or Patreon. And I definitely hope to see you here really soon. Thanks so much.